I was just reading uh, uh, Moses complaining, Lord, who am I? I don't know. I sputter. I I made your mouth. I know what you're about. Get up there and get going. So in a way, my life has been like that. I feel like I'm really not a speaker. I'm not a whatever. But I do find delight in Jesus Christ. And I want to tell that story a little bit. What I want to do in our two chapels together is chase two terms, abide uh, in Christ, in his word, and in his love. So that'll be our two points. So we'll pick up the first one from John chapter 8, abide in my word. But let me give a little context here as we get launched here. In John 831, it says, true disciples will abide in the, uh, in the son's words. It's a spontaneous response to faith. That's what I have as my little lead-in item. But I want to tell my own story on that before we get going. And it started in a state called Montana. I was uh, a Glasgow Scotty up in northeastern Montana in high school, way up in the far northeast. And <clears throat> where all the snow we had blew in from places like Bozeman, Missoula, and Great Falls. But... Um, so <clears throat> there I was, went to a church camp that my folks found out by way of Wheaton, Illinois, Wheaton College. My mom says, is there a good ch- church camp? And it turns out there's this place called Clydehurst, south of Big Timber. Uh, boy, I get teared up. It's where I met Jesus. Okay, let's start again. So there at Clydehurst, I said, God, I don't think you're really there. I think this is a charade. I think it's a big old storyline. I'm not sure it's the real thing. I was a 16-year-old. I had a friend who died. And, uh, you know, I was going, I, I don't think there's anything on the other side. I just think I'm dead and gone. So I said, God, if you're there, could you please speak to me? I'd like to hear from you. And that was funny because I'd been selected to be a spiritual leader for the other campers. You know, it was, a, it was a one-off event that they never tried again. <laughs> so what they did is they uh, had us um, uh, selected. I was actually on the work crew. It was a, it was a bizarre arrangement where um, my folks, my dad had just retired from the Air Force. We were in uh, Air Force Base that used to be in Glasgow, and uh, dad was traveling around the western United States, and we traveled all the way Seattle, Los Angeles, Colorado, Rapid City, South Dakota, and we came back through Montana. And we were going through Big Timber, and for a rare occasion, I was not in the Volkswagen with my brother, but in the station wagon car with my parents on this really rare occasion for this 2,000-mile month, uh, you know, 10-week trip, whatever it was, and mom happens to have had too much coffee that morning. And she says, well, here comes Big Timber. I was snoozing in the back seat. Big Timber, I said, you sent me to that church camp last year, Clydehurst. Uh, that's just 30 miles, 40 miles south of here in the mountains. And mom goes, oh, would you like to see it? Well, the answer was not really. We wanted to get to Spokane because that was our destination. Um, so we went to see it. We went down to Clydehurst, and it turns out, uh, the camp director invited us to stay for lunch. And uh, this is before the Browns, uh, well, anyway, I won't get into particulars. Let's just say the camp director said, stick around. And he looks at our car, my brother, myself, our suitcases, our Volkswagen, and said, you know, we have lost two of our summer work staff, two of the boys and the boys' crew out of seven. And would you two like to fill their spaces? And so within the hour, we were waving goodbye to our parents. Now, in this time, I was asking, is there really a God? And I'm going, what just happened? 
And then I was selected to be, once the high school camp started, a couple of weeks later, just went into the work crew, and the high school camp started. And there I was being selected out of about uh, 40 other juniors coming, you know, coming into my junior year. I was 16. In high school, I was selected out of about 30 or 40 kids to represent the junior class as the spiritual good guy, you know, whatever. And they didn't know that I was doubting my faith, doubting any faith. So there I was out on the hillside on that first day of the week. I said, God, if you're there and you're manipulating this whole thing, I've got to hear from you. Otherwise, I'm going to go down and announce that I'm not really a Christian and I have, want to do nothing in terms of offering leadership because I have nothing to offer. Okay? So I sat on the hillside there. Right, you know, they filmed a movie years later at Clydehurst called A River Runs Through It. I'm right on the hillside looking down on the Boulder River. And it was a pretty scenic place waiting for God to speak. And nothing happened. For over an hour, I'm sitting there just saying, you know, if you won't speak, can't speak, it doesn't seem like you're much of a God. It seems like if you created us like I would, I'm told, you should be able to speak, okay? Uh, I know I can't barge into your office. I'm ready to just sit here and listen. But after a while, if you refuse to do anything, what can I do? What can I say? I'm just going to leave it there and go on. Okay, I've never heard God speak. No voices. But I did have a clear and distinct thought, kind of like forgetting that, oh, I should have called so-and-so. Or I should, you know, turn the lights off or on, that sort of thing. A clear and distinct thought came to mind. Why don't you try reading your Bible, dummy? (laughs) The dummy part was part of it. Okay, so I, I, I knew what the Bible had to offer. It always ended with obey mommy and daddy. You know, that was the piece that I, you know, I had it nailed. And I said, I don't know what it can offer me, but I'll pick it up and start reading it. So I started reading Matthew, and I got to the Sermon on the Mount, and oh, it just massacred me. You know, I'm a, I was a teenage kid. If your right eye causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, pluck, chop. We were just listening to hyperbole. I got the hyperbole in it, but I was going, well, you're serious, Lord. I was in a class where we were doing uh, biblical poetry. Um, and it, it was really, it caught my attention. I'm going, well, what do you want? So I started a conversation with the Bible. Well, you better be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. That's for sure, Jesus said. Yeah, well, I, I don't even know what they were about. Yeah, well, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. I'm going, I can't do that. What, is, what are you asking for? And I'm literally horrified because I realize I'm a sinner and I'm starting to hear God, Jesus speak through the Bible. And he goes on and talks about more, you know, how to pray and all these other things. But I got to the part that really mattered to me was no one can serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other, serve the one and despise the other. Well, I'll tell you what, at Glasgow High School, I was famously a Monday through Saturday non-Christian and a Sunday Christian because uh, that's what we did. You know, you just do your Sunday thing. And uh, really, I don't think there was too much in the way of living faith, apart from maybe my family in that little church at that time. And um, that's where I thought, there's a lot of hypocrisy here. I'm not sure I'm take, I can take this very seriously. So I'm going, well, okay, no one can serve two masters. I know what that feels like. It's kind of like stretching, 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 keep your feet in both worlds. And I was really realizing how uncomfortable that was. So I... I kept reading and said, well, where do I go from here? No one, you know, no one can serve two masters. Do you want me to go to a, a monastery? I'm not a Catholic. What, a, you know, what do you want? And the next thing he said was, look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, which I'd been doing for over an hour. Do they struggle? Solomon in all of his glory wasn't cared for like they are. Can he take care of you, O man of little faith? <sighs> Score one for God. He wins on that one. 
So I'm sitting there just, just going, well, where, then where do I go from here? And I, one of those things, I was an anxious 16-year-old. I was trying to figure out how to make the world work. And he said, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single span to, to the length of your life? You know, you can't do anything. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let him add these things to you. I said, you're on. The weight came off my shoulders. And I said, so how does this work? I was now a Christian. I don't get it. Where do I go? What do I do? What am I supposed to do? Ask and shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open. For what man of you, if your son asks him for um, uh, bread, would give him a, a stone or fish, give him a snake. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask him? I went, boy, this is so clear. How come I've never gotten this before? I just, I don't, I, this is new to me. I, this is all so new to me. We're, well, the road is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few there are that find it. The road is broad and easy that leads to destruction. Most people prefer that route. But does that mean not everyone in the Christian is necessarily safe? Look, at many will come to me in the last days and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many mighty miracles and cast out demons in your name? And I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you sons of disobedience. It was that hypocrisy that was bugging me and causing me to walk away. I'm going, you know about that, don't you? Oh, my Lord. Wow. What do, where do I go? I kept reading. I got up to chapter 10. And I'm saying, is it my imagination or do you really care for me? The very next verse, look, it aren't two sparrows sold for a penny. Not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. Indeed, every hair in your head is counted. Okay? So I'm a, I'm a Montana Christian. Everything in my life has been the ripples of that moment in 19, this is going to date me, 1964. It's a long time ago. But it still impacts me. So what happened after that is I went to a good church in Spokane and had a youth pastor who loved Jesus, and he helped me, helped me go forward spiritually. And then after two years in high school, graduated from high school, um, the church there sent me up, along with another guy, Steve, to work uh, helping to construct a church uh, building in Seashell, British Columbia. And the old pastor there, 70-year-old guy, seven, Sam Castles. Sam was a dear old guy, Scottish by heritage, um, missionary to Africa for many years, retired in Canada, and got there and discovered they didn't have an evangelical church within reasonable distance. So at age 70, he planted a new church in his retirement. And so it was booming, it was starting to grow, and they needed a building. So the two of us were up there to help with the construction. And every morning, Sam and his wife would uh, treat us to breakfast, and it was always fun to have breakfast with Sam. I'll never forget my first breakfast there. Um, I said, boy, Sam, I sure love the trees that come right down to the the ocean shore here. This is an incredibly beautiful place. He says, and aren't trees important? When you think about it, trees are such a thing, a gift that God gives to us. Yeah, I never thought, yeah, okay, I like the trees, but where are you going with this? He said, when you think about the trees of the Garden of Eden, for instance, the tree of knowledge and the tree of the, uh, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, he said, that's, everything kind of divides there, and you kind of move forward from that, and the tree, trees then become terribly important when you find out that no one has ever hung on a tree in death unless the God has uh, cursed them. We find that in Deuteronomy 21. And when we get to the book of Galatians, we find out that Jesus is hung on the tree, a curse for our sins, not for his own. And so it's through the cursing on the tree that we are having our curse lifted because Jesus takes it upon himself. And that's the solution to the problem. And guess what we find in the book of, uh, the book of Revelation there at the end? 
you got the trees, trees of life once again. So you could really say the Bible is a book from tree to waving tree. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, oh, that's over breakfast. And the next morning, oh, you know, that reminds me of Melchizedek. There we have him in Genesis 14. We don't know where he's coming from, but he sure has an impact on Abraham's life. And it's a transition in Abraham. And, and then we go to Psalm 110, and out of nowhere we find there's an order of priesthood, an order of Melchizedek. Isn't that interesting? And then you get to the book of Hebrews, and the rest of breakfast is all about Hebrews. I'm just sipping my coffee. And the next morning, oh, that reminds me. I said, Sam, 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 how do you do that? Every, every morning, something that I or Steve says reminds you of the whole Bible. Did you do a, you know, did you do a, a themes of the Bible course somewhere? Where can I get this course? I like it. I just don't know. You know, what do you do? No, he says, I just read the Bible. Well, I do too. A chapter a day keeps the devil away. <laughs> no, he says, I read it. I read it. And I didn't really say that, but that's what I thought. Um, I said, well, how much do you read? I mean, what do you do? He said, I'll just read and finish, start and finish. All right, how much do you read? Oh, I don't know, two or three times a year. Matthew to Revelation? No, no, the whole thing's the word of God, Genesis to Revelation. And how long have you been doing this? Well, since I became a Christian, I was 20 at the time, so I'm 70 now, about 50 years. I said, have you read through the Bible between 100 and 150 times? He looks at his wife, she'd been doing it with him. Yeah, that'd be right. Yeah, yeah, I think so, sure. Wow, how do you have time for that? Well, you do what you think's important. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you do, don't you? So anyway, Sam blessed my socks off because I had been birthed through Bible reading. And here was a man who really took the little narrow, you know, a chapter a day or even a, in a year is fine. But guess what? You never get the flow. That's 10 minutes a day. A half an hour gets you through the Bible every four months. And it's just, it, you get the narrative. You start to get the flow. And I just adopted that. I'm past Sam now. I've been doing it since 1966. And I would never trade it in for anything. So that's why I wanted to talk about the word this morning. Just say, I hope I can infect one or two of you so that 50 or 60 years from now, you can be talking about where this, this crazy guy came in and said, you ought to try reading your Bibles and, um, and see where it takes you. So it, so what I want to do is say how it impacted other people in terms of doing discipleship. I remember being in the Army. I was one of the last of the draftees. I appreciated my soulmate back here who did the deeper end of things uh, in the military. But my two years in the Army were a great time. And I ended up at Fort Myer, Virginia, which is where the Arlington Cemetery, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, is as an MP saluting. We had 27 generals living on the post. My goodness. Um, but I had a roommate who I think was the only other Christian in the 561st Military Police Company. And uh, <clears throat> let's just say he was complaining about the pressure the other MPs were putting on him. He says, oh, Ron, he says, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian here. I just, yeah. He says, it's they're, they're, they don't pick on you like they pick on me. You just have no idea the pressure I'm feeling. Well, I, I, I knew that John would go to church, but that was the only thing he ever did Christian-wise. And I, I just blew up on him. I, I said, Johnny, it's because you don't stand for anything. You know, I have, I, frankly, I, you claim to be a Christian, but I never see anything about you that's particularly Christian. You, you, you make a profession, but I don't see anything happening in your life. And I was doing my Bible reading every morning. I said, Johnny, if an infinite God gave us a book no thicker than this, wouldn't it be worthwhile to spend a little time in it? Why don't you try reading your Bible? So he did. 
in fact, I, I came back at lunchtime. This is a breakfast conversation. And uh, I came back to apologize because I was actually thumping my finger in his chest when I said that. Why don't you try reading your Bible? And he came back, I came back to apologize. And he, he says, no, 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 no. I needed to hear that. Thank you for that. That was, he says, and this is good stuff. He was halfway through Genesis. And he keeps reading it. He reads through the whole Bible in the next eight weeks. It's like watching a, a, a rocket ship take off in terms of his spiritual life. And believe me, there was no persecution after that. Remember his, his great nemesis, John Bagara, big Polish-American MP, um, and his tennis partner. One day I showed up just to see if Johnny was really serious. He said, yeah, I'm reading the Bible verses to them. And I said, really? These guys are tough. And he, I, I came in, he was, the, uh, he was the, uh, the radio guy who did the dispatching from our, our PMO Provost Marshal's office. And so he's sitting there, I came in, and he's got some place in second, uh, no, um, uh, some Jeremiah, or some prophetic work, and he's just reading this warning. Woe to you, listen to you, Begara, you gotta read, this is for you, buddy, You're, you are in trouble, man, listen to this. <laughs> Begara, I didn't know that was in there. So I don't know if that's good evangelism, but let's just say uh, it just changed li his life. <clears throat> and what he said to me at the end of his time, I said, John, what changed in your life? He says, Ron, when I started reading the Bible, I fell in love with Jesus. That's what the change was. So then we're not talking about Bible reading for the sake of Bible reading. We're talking about relational Bible reading, and that changed his life. So all of that is context for what I want to do very briefly here in the limited time that I have. I want to talk in John 8 and take us all the way from John 8.30 down to the end of the chapter with a brief overview and a little bit of a reflection. So we pick it up here in 8.30, and usually you'll find a, a break there, a paragraph break, and usually with a heading that gets in the way uh, between 30 and 31. So I'll just ignore the heading and say, as he was saying these things, John 8, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, now, are these the same people? I think it, it is indeed the same group, or at least a subset of the same group. And what we'll find is that Jesus is not always satisfied with the belief that people have. The same thing we saw at the end of chapter 2. Uh, many believed in him, but if we read the Greek, it's, you get a reversal of the Greek word pistior, believe. But Jesus didn't believe in their belief. And so what is it that Jesus didn't believe in? Well, that's the rest of the Gospel of John, which is all about believing. And here we have another episode of believing that was unbelievable, you know, not trusting, trustworthy. So Jesus confronts this failed or flawed belief. And what is the broken part of it? He says, uh, so Jesus said to the disciples who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And I want to suggest that the relationship of the word to discipleship or to faith or to living faith is very one-to-one, -one, that a person who is genuinely saved will have an appetite for the word because Jesus says so. That's the whole point of this text. Abiding is a key, like a vine and branch as he uses the language of abiding in chapter 15. That's what you do. You don't come and go. It's a sustained reality. And so Jesus says, if you're truly my disciples, abide in my word and you'll know the truth and we'll, the truth will set you free. Now, this group of people immediately started to dispute him with him because they had a sense that they were free and they didn't need to be set free. And Jesus said, no, if you've ever sinned, if you're a sinner, you sin because you're a slave to sin. Sin is a problem of addiction. 
and everyone is dead in their sins. You've got to recognize that, and you have to be set free. And he goes on and presses uh, this forward with his declaration of being household members and also uh, what it is to have God as a father. And what we find is that there's two separate paternities, two fatherhoods that are present here. And as we go and come to the question of abiding in the word, we see that it's part of a polarity, a division, a separation that is a critical piece here. And let me just read 31 through 47 as the first of two segments of reading that I want to do. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, we'll skip forward, they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices is a slave, practices sin, is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the household forever, but the son remains forever. So you need to be a member of the family. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now I know that you are indeed offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. Now, this is quite a, quite a push, isn't it, from a group of people who had believed in him, and Jesus seems to be driving them away right now. He's really not very well, <laughs> winsome and warm in the way he's engaging them, but they're not very winsome and warm in the way they're responding to him. They wanted what he had to offer, but now as he pushes back a little bit, it turns into a polarized moment. Let's see how it unfolds. They answered, Abraham is our father. Uh, Jesus said, if, God, if, if you were Abraham's father, children, you would do the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, apparently they'd heard of the virgin birth, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said, if To them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. And uh, I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear, bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because uh, there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, the lie, it's interesting, in the, in the underlying Greek, it's the hasudas, it's a singular lie with the article, and, and then with the particle that follows it, it uh, but it, we generalize it. And for some reason, our, our New Testament translators always generalize the use of the lie, which is found in places like Romans 1, uh, served and worship the creator, uh, creation rather than creator. Why? Because they, they followed the lie rather than the truth. You find in 2 Thessalonians, uh, they didn't have a a love for the truth, uh, instead love the lie. So I think the question of what is the lie, and I think it's the singular central point that Satan starts with and uses as his primary addictive pathway. So I'll come to, come to that in a minute. So he, he said, well, that's, he, what, he's a murderer. Uh, there's, uh, he doesn't ever speak the truth, and there's no truth in him. When he, when he uh, speaks the lie, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of literally it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? And uh, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. Now, is that warm and winsome outreach ministry? 
Jesus needed some coaching, or maybe he didn't. Maybe we need the coaching to sometimes press the issue a little bit of what is your view of God? How are you doing with him? Are you ready to engage his word at a heartfelt, deep and profound level? Are you ready to follow him, not in bits and pieces as it's practically useful to you, but as a wholehearted dive into the water and start swimming, start to live that life in a wholehearted, whole-souled way. And so Jesus is basically saying, you're either a family member or you're not. Let's go with the paternity theme. If you don't get the fact that there are two fathers, um, you're missing a huge point. And we find that Paul will pick that up, for instance, when he says in uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following after the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all lived, once lived, following the lusts of your mind and your flesh. You see that polarity. It's a simple, singular polarity. We also find in 1 John 5 that the whole world is under the power of the wicked one. So the whole idea is that there's a paternity that is present in the world around us. And we have an alternative paternity that we have through new birth. And what is the source of that birth? Well, back in John 3, if we go to John 3, we discover that Jesus said, Hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Father sent me because he loved the world, and I am the source of life. And then the response to that is, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So again, John is a polarizing, dramatically confrontive sort of a a book in ministry when we see that in the life of Jesus. So what are the characteristics of uh, having God as father? Well, in verse 32, uh, devoted to the truth, uh, being a member of the house forever, God's house. Verse 35, what is it to be a true disciple? This is really worth uh, really underscoring. Verse 42, Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. So what's the characteristic of genuine faith? Why would we come to a Bible school when everyone else is going to Missoula or Bozeman? You know, it's it's, uh, for for the universities where we're just doing Bible study seems like a strange notion. It's because we're people who are living in an alternative pathway. Part of what it is to love God. Say, I'm coming after you, Lord. I want to know you. Uh, you know, show me the Son. Show me the Father. And that is so uniquely out of step with where our culture is. And so that's what it is to have God as our Father. The other Father is the devil. And what are his characteristics? Well, we find out there is a tendency for outward external affiliation. Well, uh, Abraham is our father, and that's our get-out-of-jail-free get card. You know, we are, we're Jews, therefore we are certain to be saved. We're fine. And Jesus said, well, actually, no, Abraham would have been one who had God as his father. And his paternity uh, is reflected in the way he lived his life by the time we get to his willingness to give up his son Isaac, for instance is a dramatic uh, display of his devotion to the Father. And so we have this uh, uh, also inward ambitions drive the choices uh, and display the real paternity. So Jesus in 44 says, well, frankly, you're devoted to death, not to life. And uh, you're devoted to the lie of the enemy and not to truth. And you cannot bear to hear what Jesus is saying. What is, is he speaking? You can't bear to hear what I have to say because you're of another paternity. You don't have the life, the sense, the DNA, the family, familial genealogy that I have. And you need to have a change of parenthood. And um, so 
The question is, where and why does this polarizing debate begin? Let's go back to the roots of it. But let me finish reading the end of the chapter because one of the features that Jesus mentions here is your desires to kill me. Well, how do a group of believers move into a group of potential murderers? Let's read on and see what happens here uh, in the passage. We'll pick it up in 48. Jesus answered them, uh, or the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> the, the conversation is in a state of decay here. Uh, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, which is to say, get out your highlighter. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, there it is again, he will never see death. Jesus, what are you saying? Never see death. And that catches their attention too. Um, so the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you keep saying, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make out yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If it is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But, if you, if you, uh, but you have not known him. I know him. If, you were to, if I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. He's, he's, he's tough. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he could, would see my day. He saw it and was glad. <laughs> this Jew said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly, highlighters again, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am my Bible reading this morning, I'm doing my Bible reading. Guess what I got to this morning? Chapter 3 in Exodus. Uh, Jesus, God, it, it, who are you? Who should I say, Moses says? Who should I say that you are? I am. That's who I am. So what's Jesus doing here? Yeah, before Abraham was, you know, I am. That's me. Uh, you? Who are you? That's blasphemy. Uh, oh, Oh, truly, truly. Oh, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple. Notice what they tried to do. They tried to murder Jesus. He predicted it. And sure enough, there it came at the end. They're ready to kill him. Of course, in the end, they do, do end up crucifying him. So to catch the tension here, this is a pretty dramatic story, isn't it? Where did it start? How about back in Genesis chapter 3? Ch chapter 2, actually, where Adam is told, look, it, here's this tree. Just leave it alone. Don't eat from it. This is a tree in the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from this tree. If you do, you'll die. Not that he knew what death was. It just, you'll die. The serpent comes along and says, you will not die. You are free, Eve, to eat it and bring your husband along, who had happened to have heard from God directly before Eve was actually taken out of his side. So he had told Eve, and Eve is now going, well, oh, yeah, okay. Well, hey, hey, honey, come and take a look. And sure enough, they ate from it. So what's the controversy there? Over death. And what's the nature of the realm of Satan? He has the realm of death. And what we have is an enemy who has the unworld to work with. God has created everything for good. Wouldn't that be fair? Uh, food, is it good? Yes. What does the enemy do? do? He takes the goodness out of food and goes into an unworld of unreality. And he comes, with, uh, comes up with uh, uh, gluttony, bulimia, anorexia, the unness of what is good. Sexuality, is it good in marriage? Oh, yeah. Between a husband and wife? Oh, yeah. Can the enemy take the goodness out of it? 
How about is that going on in the culture today? You bet it is. So you start to see the enemy can only undo, because he's not a creator. All he can do is take goodness out of the creation and create his whole realm. And what is the realm that he has? God has life. What does the enemy have? Death. God has truth. What does the enemy have? The lie. Light, darkness. Do you catch that? So this whole rhythm of, of, of ultimate reality starts here in Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus is going back to that and says, you are of the realm of death if you don't listen to my words, because what was it that was denied by Adam and Eve, even though they had heard it directly from God, God's word, while God was not in the garden? And so what does God do to counteract the power of the satanic lie? You will not die. He's now coming to the world, and without his dominating presence so that he intimidates people. Rather, instead, by his soft and quiet voice and the beauty of the truth and the life, begins to offer himself to us as a counterpoint to what happened to Adam. And we then begin to abide in his word, and the truth begins to set us free from all the enemy has to offer. And that's what Jesus is saying. The word is always the battle point. God's word, the enemy's word. You will, you will uh, die, you will not die. And what is the world living in now? The realm called death. And what's the impulse of the world? Is it is faced and confronted with those who have life? It's to say, I wish I could kill you. And Jesus accelerated that in this conversation. Does that make sense? So what is it that you guys are doing here as you're studying the word of God you're engaging life and truth. And it's, that, it's good stuff. And so I can only tell you that that day at Clydehurst, when I read the word, I began to be set free. I'm still in the process. Boy, I've got lots of room to grow. Um, and you guys are doing the same thing. I trust you are. Okay, let me just pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for sending the Son. Thank you for the truth. The word, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. That he... Uh, Father, came to share who you are, and we've received him, and we get to love him, and we get to love you, and we get to share in that love relationship that you have eternally within yourself as the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. So thank you for this morning where we could do some reflecting on this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.